Listener Production. <laughs> I love having you on, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> very uh, funny having you over there in the producer's booth, though. Oh, I don't know how I'm liking my new found <laughs> personality. Well, the listeners are absolutely loving it, so get used to it. I wouldn't know. I avoid all their comments. <laughs> Oh, well, I'm going to have to slide them under your nose when you don't suspect it, mm. like sneaking medicine into a dog's yeah. food. But anyway, here we are, Woo-hoo. back again, lots going on in the world. We've got mm-hmm. a new king. We've also got a new True, queen. exactly. Drag Race Down Under just crowned a new winner, oh. Spanky Jackson, second winner from New Zealand. Um, and I'm absolutely in love with the choice. It was kind of a surprise choice, but it, it really does make sense now when you think about it. Drag Race Down Under, you haven't seen any of it, have you? I've seen none of any of the franchise. It is the loosest, <laughs> sloppiest, messiest, silliest of all the franchises, which is what we love about it. So it makes perfect sense that the loosest, sloppiest, <laughs> silliest, messiest queen won. So congratulations to Spanky Jackson. But um, more importantly, this week we've got another iconic guest. We sure do. Miss Taria Pitt. And, of course, it was an absolutely bananas story that happened right here in Sydney. What did you think of it without giving anything too much away? I went into it without a fear of sharks Mm -hmm. and I left it similarly without a fear of sharks. Okay. So if you're worried about this episode scaring you out of uh, some summertime fun in the ocean, I don't think that it will. (laughs) Um. But it did convince me that getting a tattoo on my arm, which is a decision that I've been tossing up (laughs) recently, is potentially a good decision just in case I ever (gasps) reach a similar fate to Jimmy. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. All right. Well, listeners, listen on for that (laughs) to make sense if it's baffled you a little bit right now. Um, Before we jump in, though, Lindsay, I have a question for you mm-hmm. and I want you to be completely honest, safe space and I might be 100% wrong about this but when I heard about those ridiculous long queues to view the Queen's coffin over in England, I thought about whether there is anyone I know in my life <laughs> who I think would have gone down and joined that queue just so they could say for the rest of their lives that they got to experience that moment in history and the only person I could think of who would do that was you. <gasps> I can't believe that's my reputation. Not in or a bad my, way. Or my vibe that I'm giving off. Oh, no. I, <laughs> you certainly don't give off rabid royalist, mm-hmm. but you are definitely one of those people who loves to get involved in mm. things. You always seem to be know about shows and festivals that are going on and you're always gallivanting off to places I've not even heard of. Your life is very full of activities. And I thought I could see Lindsay being the type of person who'd be like, because you're also very you know, patient and chilled. Mm-hmm. So I could see you being okay with standing in the queue as long as you got to sort of participate in history, not because the Queen mm-hmm. necessarily meant anything to you, but just because, you know, it's another little badge of honour for you. So I was completely wrong. No, completely wrong. <laughs> I, yeah, don't really have the patience for standing in a line, particularly not for the length of time that these people mm, are waiting in line. See a box. And funny you should mention that. I was listening to um, the latest episode of the Adam and Simon show, Friends of the Podcast, Adam and Simon, uh, this morning, and I didn't realise until they mentioned it in their episode that it's not. A, it wasn't an open casket. Mm. So this whole time I was thinking like, oh, like it's a bit 
embarrassing to stand mm. in line for a day to see like an old lady laying in a box <laughs> until they said that it wasn't even an open casket. So they were just waiting in line for days mm-hmm. to walk past a box. Yep. No guarantee she was even in there. That's that's what they said. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bizarre. Um, just before we kick off, I want to say a big thank you to all of you who've sent through such lovely feedback about our episode about Operation Yellow Ribbon and in particular a huge round of applause to those of you who've gone ahead and bought tickets to Come From Away. You're going to absolutely love it no matter where you're going to see it. Um, oh, and just one more thing, Lindsay. I feel like you should know because this is the other stream of messages we've been getting since we put out the episode with Adam about the Cleveland Balloon Fest mm-hmm. where I mentioned that my mother used to use mm. my deathly fear of <laughs> balloons as a toddler um, to help her with training me. She'd put balloons anywhere she didn't want me to go. <laughs> a few people have been trying that technique <laughs> to train their babies and train their puppies and apparently they've found it to be really effective. So there you go, top tip to all of you if you haven't given it a crack yet and um, you think it might work for mm-hmm. you, what have you got to lose? Except maybe an eye. Yeah. All right, here we go. Is that a beer? It is, yes. Is that a fucking beer? <laughs> Cheers. If I could... Cheers. <laughs> I wish I had the means, the method to be able to share one with you right now. Feel free to run and grab one if you want. So rude. <laughs> I'm a terrible host. I'm so sorry. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead. All right, let's go. Hello and welcome to Just the Gist, a weekly-ish podcast in which ordinarily Rosie Waterland and I, Jacob Stanley, give you just the gist of what you need to know about a story we think you'll find interesting enough to share at a dinner party. As you all know, Rosie is taking a little bit of a break to look after her health and while she's away, we've got some extra special guest hosts who've been coming on board. And this week we have the legend, the icon, Taria Pitt joining us. Taria, welcome to Just the Gist. Ew, thanks for having me. So exciting. We are thrilled to have you on board. Um, For the minority of people who are listening who are unaware of Taria Pitt, could you please give us just the gist of who you are and what you do? Yeah, of course. So my name's Taria. I've got two little boys. I've got a podcast called Taria Pitt is Hard Work. I do motivational speaking and I teach mums how to run. Uh Aha. And you've also written a few very popular Shit, books. I forgot I about forgot about that. I've written three <laughs> best-selling books. Must add that to the bio. Obviously, you've got so many different aspects of your career. Is there a favourite out of all of them? No, you know what? I actually really enjoy podcasting. I guess mm-hmm. it might be because I'm relatively new and fresh and energetic and enthused, unlike some other people out there. <laughs> um, but, but because I'm really new. I guess I really like chatting to people Mm -hmm. who've got interesting stories Mm -hmm. that I can just ask questions about their lives and what they've done and kind of get to the gist, I guess, of what what that could mean for the rest of us. Mm -hmm. Terrific. And so tell us a bit about the concept behind your podcast, which is called Turia Pit is Hard Work, by the way. Basically just speaking to people who've done something hard or have gone through something hard mm-hmm. to figure out if there's like lessons that we could apply to our own lives or learnings or perspective, or maybe we listen to the podcast episode and think, oh, well, they've managed to get through their hard thing. Maybe I could apply 
X, Y, Z in my own life. One of my favourite episodes was the most recent one um, about the Thai cave diver Richard Harris, who was the anaesthetist who Mm. cave dove down to the boys, rescued the whole soccer team. And I thought it was really interesting because he just had a very pragmatic and logical Mm. approach to that extremely high-risk drama-filled situation. Yeah. That episode was phenomenal and I'm sure a lot of people who listen to it will feel a similar level of tension verging on anxiety as they were. (laughs) Mine was anxiety. Mine was anxiety. It is so intense (laughs) and hearing him talk about his personal experiences there on the ground and the decisions he had to make. And yes, like you say, he was very pragmatic but he's very candid about the effect um, that making those tough decisions had had on him. Um, It's a really, really wonderful interview and I definitely recommend everyone go and listen to it. Would you say that's your preferred gateway drug for people to get into? Yeah, I think that's a good gateway drug. Uh That's a very good gateway drug. All right, well, we'll pop the link for that in our show notes. And um, just before we get into the story I'm going to be sharing with you this week, Taria, I've asked you to prepare two truths and a lie for me. Three statements you're going to tell me, two of which are true and one of which is a fib. And I'll see if I can guess which one is the lie. So in no particular order, obviously, take it away. Okay. I was born in Australia. Mm-hmm. I'm married. Mm-hmm. And I have a double degree. Um, ooh. You're definitely married because we were talking about your husband just before. And I double degree, I feel like maybe you're the type of person who's an overachiever and have a triple or quadruple (laughs) degree. So I feel like that might be a little bit of a trick. So I'm going to go with my gut because I think I remember reading something somewhere once that you were born in French Polynesia. So you're right. I'm going to you're say right. Oh, yes. <laughs> you're right. Ding, you ding, win. ding. You win, I lose. Ah, so there we go. So you were born in French Polynesia. Which part? I was born in Tahiti. My oh, mum's Tahitian. Yeah. And my dad was over there on a surf trip. Mm-hmm. And they got, got together. I can see how there'd be romance in the air over there, yeah. Yes, we weren't. So they had my older brother, myself, and then we moved to Australia when I was like two. Uh-huh. And have you ch- had the chance to go back there very much? Yeah, 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 heaps of times because all of my mum's family is still over there. Mm. So I've got like aunties and uncles and grandparents and cousins and second cousins and... Oh, lucky you. And you went on a holiday recently, Toria. We saw you surfing yes. on Instagram. Was it, yes. Did you see my mad dog? Waves. I was Jacob. looking at it yesterday and I was like, Lindsay. is this Taria? Very impressive. What? Yeah, it was a me. weapon. Yeah. It didn't show all the other waves where yeah. I fell off, but obviously the, that good wave. It was extremely yeah, it was a really good. It was a really good surf trip, but it was the first time I've left my kids for so long. How long were you gone for? Like 10 days. Oh, okay. They're not like super long, but long enough, yeah, you know? Yeah. But you know what? They didn't even notice. My mum was here. She was hand feeding them bacon. That was so fine. <laughs> <laughs> that was so fun. I've heard that from a few of my friends who were parents. Yeah. They're like, okay, I'm glad they weren't traumatised that I was missing, but I wish that they'd missed me a little bit more than they <laughs> did. I'd love to feel a bit more needed than I'm currently feeling. It did make me feel very much redundant, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, so I booted mum out. 
She's gone and now I can take my place as a matriarch again. You're back in the spotlight. Yes. Very yep. good. All right. Well, should we go ahead and jump into this story? Let's, let's do it because I'm frothing. For this week. Frothing. Love to hear I'm that. Frothing. All right. So... On Just the Gist, we have spoken more than a few times about Melissa Caddick's disappearance and assumed death. It's a story that Rosie's been obsessed with since the news I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed with that story too. So you're probably following the inquest that's currently going on, looking into the details of the disappearance slash death, and you're seeing all the different headlines that are coming out, some shocking details. For those of you who don't know or don't remember, Melissa Caddick was a financial advisor who got sprung for stealing like $30 million from her clients, and then she disappeared in November of 2020, and then incredibly, her foot washed up on a beach miles and miles away in February of 2021. We will soon see what the outcome of the inquiry quest is. I think that's going to wrap up at some point next week. I'm not here to tell you the story of Melissa Caddick though, um, but I am here to tell you that her tale is not the first time in Australian history that the appearance of a criminal's body part has caused not only a media sensation, but has launched an inquest into an assumed death. And Melissa Caddick's case is not even the most dramatic, I would argue, because that title really goes to the time that in 1935, a shark in an aquarium in Sydney regurgitated a complete human arm in front of onlookers and sparked a huge investigation, of course, sparked the coronial inquest, all based on the assumption that the owner of the arm was dead and likely murdered. This oh, is God. just the gist of what is commonly, and let's face it, comically known as the shark arm murder case. So, I have so many questions. I'm, I have so many questions. <laughs> what type of shark was it? It was a tiger shark and it was a big they one. They had a tiger shark uh-huh. in the aquarium. In an aquarium, yep. All will be revealed. I'm getting uh, okay, the vibe getting from you, Taria, that you don't know anything about this yet at all. No, do don't know anything at all. Uh-huh. I think you're really going to like it. So here are my findings from the last few days of research. So things kick off, of course, with the regurgitation, which happened on Thursday, the 26th of April, 1935, which anyone in Australasia will know is Anzac Day a public holiday, everyone has the day off, and thousands of people chose to spend their free afternoon at the Coogee Aquarium so they could go and see the newest attraction there, which is this 4.4-metre tiger shark, the biggest shark ever in captivity. And I don't believe she'd been given a name, but we're going to call the shark Shirley. How did they know Shirley was a girl? Do you know, no one's actually mentioned the shark's gender. I've just decided that Shirley uh, okay, is sorry. a lady. Um, okay. Yeah, she was a beautiful, big female. And um, yeah, I didn't confirm that. I just made the decision for myself. That's fine. Mm. So fine. Uh, she'd been <sighs> caught just off the coast of Coogee. And if you're not familiar with Sydney, Coogee is just a few beaches south of Bondi. Poor Shirley had been in the Coogee Aquarium for just under a week. And when I say aquarium, we're not talking about the sort of aquarium that we'd think about today. Shirley was not That's what in I was thinking. Tank. People weren't viewing her from 
through a pane of glass. Yeah. There was no seaweed, there was no coral. The Coogee Aquarium, in inverted commas, was just a basic saltwater swimming pool, 50 yards long, so like 45 metres. Shallow end, deep end. In summer, it was used for laps and leisure, but then between April and October, when it was too cold to swim, they'd use it to showcase animals that had been poached from the wild that people could come and look at. Was there any other animals with Shirley? Shirley was on her own. Um, anytime they would have an animal, it would be there solo. She would solo. eat it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. They were feeding, they were trying to feed Shirley um, rabbits and occasionally when they'd have a shark in the aquarium, they'd throw it chunks of sheep and whatnot. Um, People would flock there for feeding times most of the time because there would only be one animal there in the pool at any given time. Mostly it was a shark, sometimes it was a seal or a sea leopard whatever they could catch, basically. And those animals would have to be replaced fairly regularly because the poor things never lived longer than two weeks in that pool. (sighs) Most of the sharks would only last a couple of days. So we get to late afternoon on April 26th. The Anzac Day crowd had dissipated. There were only about a dozen people standing around the pool watching Shirley swim, lazy, depressed laps. She clearly wasn't well. And then all of a sudden, Shirley went nuts. She started darting around the pool really quickly, ramming into the walls, thrashing the water around, splashing the onlookers who were like, ooh, this just got very exciting. Mm, mm. Uh, Then she swam down to the shallow end of the pool, was perfectly still for a while. All 12 or so people walked down there to see what Shirley was going to do next. And then all of a sudden, this cloud of light brown, sludgy muck started spreading out through the water. Apparently, the stench was horrendous and instant. And then one by one, Shirley's last few undigested meals started floating up to the surface. And this right here is some nightmare fuel. There was half a rat. There were pieces of fish, including other sharks. There were feathers. And then the grand finale floating in the middle of all that degree popped up an adult human arm with a piece of rope tied to its wrist. What? Yeah. (laughs) That's the reaction that all the punters had that day when they watched all these different items emerge and start bobbing around on the surface. And then when she'd got that all out of her system, Shirley went back to swimming her laps around the pool. And all the people who saw this happen were absolutely adamant they saw Shirley regurgitate the items. It couldn't have been an optical illusion. There was no other way that those things, especially the arm, managed to get in the pool without being spotted. Why was there rope around the arm? That, I'm going to tell you a theory Uh, towards the end. Okay, okay. But it's never been answered Unequivocally, is that the word I'm looking for? Yeah, we don't have a definite answer for that. This whole case is an unsolved mystery. We're going to talk you through some theories today, but um, we don't really know what happened here. Um, And how much of the arm was there? Like, was it up to the forearm, the uh, shoulder? Yeah, that's... It had been removed from its owner's body at around the shoulder joint mm-hmm. and they were pretty sure that that owner had been a man. And the rope was around the wrist. The rope was tied around the wrist, yes. So maybe the arms were tied together. Potentially it was quite a long length of rope, but yes, that is one of the yes. theories. So, of course, the cops came down, they 
confirmed it was a real human fleshy arm and they were like, okay, we're going to need to know a bit more information about this shark, please. And the owners of the aquarium were these two brothers. They were hustlers who did anything they needed to do to sell tickets to their establishment. And that included regularly setting their own traps in the ocean out off Coogee to catch the wildlife that they would then bring back and show in the aquarium rather than paying someone else to do it. So they'd caught Shirley themselves. And when they did, they really thought they had hit the jackpot, not only because she was so huge, but because she was unconscious when they found her in their traps. The day before, they'd set a few of these line traps, left them overnight. At some point, a relatively small shark had come along, Mm -hmm. taken the bait, got caught on a hook and then Shirley swam along and she'd eaten the smaller shark and while she was chomping down on that little baby shark, she got herself tangled up in all the trap lines, spent the rest of the night wriggling around trying to escape and by morning when they found her, she was completely exhausted. So it was unusually easy to tow her back to shore and then just chuck her on a tarp and get a dozen blokes to help drag her up to the aquarium and dump her in the swimming pool. And the cops were like, okay, do you think there's any possibility someone could have fed the arm to Shirley while she's been here in the pool? And the owners of the aquarium said that would just be totally impossible to do without being noticed. But I will suggest we all just put a pin in that for later because I want to circle back on that. The cops bought that. They thought it was plausible that these guys were saying there was just no way anyone could feed the arm to Shirley since she'd been in there. So they figured Shirley must have eaten the arm while she was still wild and free in the ocean and it had just been sitting in her stomach for about a week while she'd been in the aquarium. And their first most obvious theory for how Shirley came to be in the possession of this mystery arm was that this was just another shark attack in a spate Mm -hmm. of frequent attacks that have been happening almost weekly in Sydney over the last few years. The 1930s was the golden age for shark attacks because all of Sydney's abattoir refuse and sewage was just being dumped straight Ah. into the ocean. So all the beaches were very well chummed up and swarming with bull sharks, tiger sharks, great whites. Going for a swim was very, very hazardous. Taria, I know you're a very keen surfer, but you would not have wanted to risk it on a Sydney beach in the 1930s. Uh, So next up, the cops needed to figure out who the original owner of the arm was. And that turned out to be surprisingly easy because conveniently on the inside of the forearm, there was a distinctive tattoo. Tat. Uh Of two men who were wearing boxing gloves and facing each other like they're ready to start a punching match, like put them up. Fairly crude, but quite unique. And so the next morning when all the newspapers, of course, ran the bizarre story about Shirley's spew on the front page, they also included a detailed description of that tattoo. And then it didn't take long for someone to come forward and identify the arm. That person who came forward was a chap named Edward Smith who told the police, I'm pretty sure that's my brother Jimmy's arm. Oh, get out. Uh-huh. And so they showed him a photo of the arm and the tattoo and he confirmed. So did, yep, did that's they Jimmy's. get the arm? So once the arm was regurgitated, mm-hmm. they scooped it out. Yeah. Took it down to the police station. Yeah, to have a, yeah. Yeah, and did yeah, what they I needed did. to do to 
preserve it and then commence yeah. doing some relatively okay. crude forensic testing. But, you know, yes. state of the, the art in 1935. <laughs> now, verifying Edward's claim that this was his brother's arm turned out to be pretty easy because Jimmy Smith was already known to police. He had a record over the years. He'd been involved in um. some light drug smuggling here and there. He dabbled in some insurance fraud and some other scams. The cops already had Jimmy's fingerprints on file. They compared them to the prints that were on the arm from the aquarium and sure enough, it was a match. Ah, uh-huh, it was a match. Was Jimmy Smith's, yes. So Jimmy's wife was contacted and uh, she confirmed that her husband hadn't been home for almost three weeks. She told the cops he'd gone on a fishing trip to Cronulla with his buddy, who was a chap named Patrick Brady, and he was meant to only be gone for one week, but she was quite used to him vanishing for weeks or months at a time with his quote-unquote work, so she hadn't reported him as missing. She figured he'd show up like he always did. And that makes sense, right? Like if your husband's a a criminal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they it's they often disappear for a yep. long period of time. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't report it. That's right. I guess because you wouldn't want to alert authorities too, to yeah. their You wouldn't get yeah. want to get him in more trouble. Yeah. Um I mean while she, why she was sticking around in this marriage is a little bit beyond It's me, the 1930s, Jacob. I don't think women <laughs> had a choice. Difficult to extricate. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Um by this point it was pretty clear to her, to everyone, um, that not only was Jimmy missing, wherever he was, he was missing an arm. And a missing person's arm or foot showing up doesn't necessarily mean that person's dead. Limbs can be amputated to help fake a death. But then in the next few days, the experts who examined Jimmy's arm said they were pretty sure the arm had been cut off by a knife that was held by a person, not chewed off by a shark. (gasps) Shirley's off the hook. And those experts were also pretty sure Jimmy was already dead when the arm was removed. So Jimmy Smith was assumed to be deceased. Foul play was obviously assumed to be involved, especially given Jimmy's connections to the criminal elements in and around Sydney, including his connection, his long-term friendship even, with known criminal Patrick Brady, the guy he'd gone on the fishing trip to Cronulla with. Okay, why would someone go to the effort of cutting off your arm after Mm. you're dead to feed it to a shark? If you wanted to send a message to the criminal underworld about what the consequences of betrayal might look like, this would be a very dramatic way to send a message along those lines. Yeah, but you would have no... You would have no control over whether or not a shark would eat the arm and then be (laughs) captured and then throw it up in the aquarium. (gasps) I feel like there's easier ways to show that. Agreed. Uh, This ended up, I think, being even more effective than the people who committed this crime intended it to be. But we've got a few more sort of wrinkles to get through before this all sort of makes sense for you. I would be very confused at this point. Yeah, I'm (laughs) just, yeah, I'm I'm confused. Uh Uh-huh. All right, so we'll call this guy Paddy. He was another known criminal, mostly into forgery. And witnesses said they saw Jimmy drinking with Paddy at a pub in Cronulla on the 8th of April and then no one had seen or heard from Jimmy from then on. For obvious reasons, the cops really wanted to have a chat 
to Paddy, but they had a pretty tricky time finding him because he'd pretty much gone into hiding from the moment the shark arm appeared at Coogee Aquarium, which was pretty suspicious. And then in the process of tracking Paddy down, the cops found out a lot about his activities over the previous weeks while Jimmy had been missing. They interviewed heaps of locals in Cronulla, including a landlord who'd rented a cottage to Paddy and taxi drivers who'd driven him around. And Paddy's activities really seemed like those of a man who'd maybe done some very, very bad things. The landlord complained that Paddy'd removed a mattress and a rug and a big metal trunk from the cottage and then strangely he'd replaced them with new versions of those items. And although he wasn't complaining, the landlord also said he could tell that Paddy had meticulously scrubbed the walls (gasps) of the cottage. Mm. Also... All the people who saw Paddy, like shop owners, taxi drivers that drove him around, said he was very dishevelled, very unkempt, seemed super anxious and shifty and paranoid in any interaction he had with anyone. So Paddy was the obvious prime suspect. And when the cops finally tracked him down, they arrested him, brought him in for a little light interrogation, already pretty convinced that he was guilty. And then with Every answer he gave to every question, he made things trickier and trickier for Mm. himself by telling lie upon lie upon lie, just making himself look more and more sus as the minutes passed. So the cops were pretty certain Paddy was the culprit. But Paddy also gave them another lead that they decided to follow, another potential suspect, when he pointed the finger at a rich businessman called Reginald Holmes. And we'll call him Reggie. That feels like such a character name, like Reginald Holmes. Reginald Holmes, yes. Um, And the fact that he's a wealthy boat builder and they called him Sydney royalty. But Paddy told the detectives that Reggie was actually involved in a whole bunch of illegal activities Mm. like forgery and bank fraud and drug smuggling. Paddy and Jimmy had both done a bunch of jobs for Reggie over the years. And Paddy also said that Jimmy had been blackmailing Reggie and he believed that Reggie'd arranged for someone to execute Jimmy to eliminate that problem for himself. And one of the taxi drivers had already told the cops that he'd taken Paddy to go and visit Reggie at his house in the days after Jimmy disappeared. So it checked out that Reggie may well be involved or at the very least have some information about what went down. So the cops went to have a chat with Reggie and he also acted like a very guilty person when they questioned him. He was clearly hiding something but they decided that Paddy was still the most likely suspect and Mm. he was the one that they decided they were going to go ahead and charge with the murder of Jimmy Smith. The news of that charge was on the front page of all the papers on the 19th of May and then the next day, the 20th of May, the story became even more bizarre than it's been Uh up to this point. Strap in. This part, honestly, I would not believe had there not been witnesses and medical records to back this up. (laughs) What? What's going to happen? 20th of May, busy Monday morning. Reggie took a speedboat out on Sydney Harbour very early after a 
big night on the piss, he was still <laughs> sloshed when he anchored his boat near Potts Point, which, if you're not familiar, very busy, very densely populated area. Mm-hmm. He was just offshore and with a whole bunch of witnesses looking from other boats as well as from the shoreline, he stood up took what he expected was his final gulp of brandy direct from the bottle, then he held a pistol up to his forehead (gasps) and pulled the trigger. What? People who were watching were, of course, aghast as they watched Reggie fall backwards off the boat into the water and then they were stupefied when they saw him surface and start splashing around and then start climbing back onto the boat. Turned out the gun had been loaded with a really cheap, crappy bullet that was made of nickel. (laughs) And his skull was so thick that the bullet was unable to make it all the way through. And so it just sort of lodged itself into the bone and splayed out a bit underneath the skin. So it really just gave him a a cut on his forehead at the end of the day and so he tried to hold on. a little so bit. So he tried to kill himself. He tried to take his own life in a very spectacular fashion and yeah. failed in a very spectacular fashion instead. Did he go to hospital to... Not immediately, no. Um, The day was not off to a good start for Reggie and he didn't really know what to do. Um, That was his one and only plan for the day. Um, Wasn't quite clear to him what his next steps were going to be. He started the boat up and he sort of slowly putted it back towards his dock. (laughs) And when he got near, some acquaintances approached him in their boats to check if he was okay because he was drenched and he had blood pouring down his face and was acting (gasps) very strangely. From From the bullet wound. Yeah, and so they're trying to find out what's going on. And while they're doing that, naturally the cops showed up because a few people had placed some phone calls. Reggie freaked out when he saw them coming and realised how guilty he'd made himself. Yes. So he took to the sea and sped off. The cops followed him and this began... back in his boat? uh, In his speedboat, yes, which was one of the fastest boats on the harbour and he kept outrunning the police for the next four hours. They played a game of cat and mouse, ducking and weaving all around Sydney Harbour, going between the big cruises and ferries. (laughs) He'd pause every now and then, let the cops get near him and then just as they were getting close, he'd take off again. He was like a, you know, when you've got a puppy Why? at the park and you're trying to catch what? it. <laughs> I think it's a game. What was he doing? He had the they'll never take me alive approach to <laughs> this naive belief he was going to outrun the police until, of course, he ran out of steam and the boat ran out of fuel and the cops were able to catch him and take him down to the station They interrogated him for the next three hours while he still had the bullet stuck in his forehead. They insisted on getting a full (laughs) confession from him of everything he knew before they'd allow him to get medical treatment. So just... (laughs) I don't think they do that these days. (laughs) No, no, I don't think... if, If they tried, they certainly wouldn't get away with it, no. Yeah. I just want you to picture... The cops hearing what Reggie told them while they're looking at this guy who's in absolute manic state with a bullet lodged in his forehead. And blood like pissing out of him. Uh Uh-huh, that's right. 
So Reggie told the cops that Paddy was the one who'd killed Jimmy and he said that Paddy... How did Reggie know? How did Reggie know? He said that Paddy had come around to his house and we know that that's true. And when he'd come around, he'd brought Jimmy's dismembered arm to the house on that evening, waved the arm around and he was basically (laughs) trying to show Reggie, this is what I'm capable of, don't fuck with me. And he was threatening Reggie that if he didn't continue to pay his demands and fulfil the requirements of the blackmail, he'd end up as dead as Jimmy. This whole thing was just <laughs> completely wild to the cops. This guy telling them this story of a dude showing up on his doorstep carrying a bag that inside contained an arm and he starts waving it around as some sort of menacing threat. Then they're in this position where they've got these two men accusing each other and each of them had a potential motive for the other and an alibi for themselves. Mm. Still unclear at this point how the arm ended up inside Shirley's stomach, but that was kind of a, do you know what a MacGuffin is? No, enlighten me. um, A MacGuffin (laughs) is when there's an object that sort of kicks a plot into motion but then isn't really relevant from that point onwards. So in this case, the discoverer of the arm is what commenced the investigation. That was a MacGuffin. Yes. Yes. Uh, Yeah. So the cops debated how they were going to proceed with this new information that had come from Reggie. Mm. Paddy had already been charged, but Reggie's performance on the harbour made him look very guilty. So maybe he was the guilty party and maybe Paddy was the one who was telling the truth. But then again, maybe Reggie was just worried about people finding out about the smuggling ring and the insurance fraud scams and his reputation being destroyed and he just decided to take his own life before the public shaming began. The cops landed on choosing to believe that Paddy was the murderer and they got Mm. Reggie to agree to testify at the coronial inquest as their star witness to help them convict Paddy. Do you think that was because Reggie was affluent and highbrow? Quite possibly, yes. As someone who's very well connected, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. But, yeah, there's every likelihood that they would have thought, let's um, put the lower class guy in jail rather than the upper class guy. Yeah, Mm. I think so. Oh, I I don't know, though, obviously. And, look, Reggie may have had some connections within the police force as well. Who knows where the corruption led. On June 11th, another twist happened. This was the... (laughs) There's too many. (laughs) This is one of the final ones. Um, The night before the coronial inquest was going to kick off, Reggie was found dead in the driver's seat (gasps) of his car. He'd been shot in the chest three times at close range and it looked very much like it was a professional hit job. The... Inquest still went ahead, but without Reggie to testify and without the majority of Jimmy Smith's body, there was basically no chance Nothing. that the prosecution could prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Paddy had killed Jimmy, especially not with Paddy's lengthy list of alibis he'd come up for himself. Mm. So he was acquitted 
and no one's ever been convicted of killing Jimmy Smith if he was, in fact, killed, nor has anyone ever been convicted for the murder of Reggie Holmes. And so for the last 90 years, it's been this unsolved mystery. However, the common belief has pretty much been, from anyone who recounts this story, that Paddy Mm. killed Jimmy and managed to get away with it on a few technicalities and that Reggie'd ordered the hit on himself because he wanted to die rather than live with the shame of people finding out he was a crook. But his family had several life insurance policies for him and those policies Mm -hmm. wouldn't be paid out if um, he was known to have taken his own life, which was something I guess he remembered after the day that he tried to shoot himself in the harbour, yes. I don't know if I agree with that part about Reggie. Like, Mm. I don't think he would be embarrassed. Like, I don't think he organised it himself. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, now we get into this new theory that emerged only recently in 2020. And I think that this will explain that in a much more satisfying way than the most common popular theory has been. So this comes thanks to a couple of Aussie high school teachers who've been obsessed with the story since the 1980s. And their names are Philip Roop and Kevin Marr. And they reviewed every statement, every piece of evidence connected to the case, every newspaper article, and they came to their own conclusions as to who was responsible for Jimmy's murder and Reggie's murder. And they put together an excellent book with the perfect title. It is simply called Shark Arm. (laughs) And I strongly recommend it. Obviously, the link's in the show notes if you want to get into it. Their retelling of the whole story is perfectly detailed, not too detailed. It's great if you want to try to wrap your head around how bonkers Mm. this whole story really was because there are even more wrinkles and twists than I've included in my little gist I'm serving here. Their theory is pretty convincing. There are a couple of gaps. I don't want to steal their thunder and give too much away, but the gist of their explanation of events is this. So by the end of 1934, everyone in Sydney knew that Jimmy Smith was a police informant. He was Mm. a rat, he was a fizz gig, he was a fizzer. Uh, For years, he'd been giving cops info that helped them catch criminals so that then they'd let him off the hook for his own crimes. And that made him the lowest of the low in criminal society. He was everyone's worst enemy, essentially. So Jimmy's days were numbered. A lot of people wanted him dead. And sure enough, one of the crime bosses in Sydney, some kingpin, who is a tangential character in most tellings of the stories, but mm, not mm. in the shark arm version of events. He sent his henchmen to find Jimmy in Cronulla and kill him and stop him from ratting out more people mm-hmm. who were in that guy's mm-hmm. gang. Now, that checks out. And yes, you also want to keep in mind they would want that execution to send a message. They'd want to show the criminal underworld that snitches get more than just stitches. They get dismembered. So they'd want it to be very, very gruesome. That checks out. And again, we'll circle back to that in a moment. The way these authors see it, the night of Jimmy's disappearance, he was hanging out in the rented cottage in Cronulla with Paddy. A bunch of scary dudes showed up. Paddy managed to run away. But Jimmy was too slow. He got caught. 
A few hours later, when Paddy got back to the cottage, there was a huge mess, blood all over the walls, the mat, and Jimmy's arm was maybe left there on the mattress to send a very unambiguous message. But the rest of Jimmy was gone, never to be seen again. Now, Paddy was too scared to tell anyone what happened or who was responsible, Mm. especially the cops, because he knew he'd be the next to be executed if he tattled, right? At the same time, he was really scared he was going to be accused of killing Jimmy himself. And if he was convicted on that charge, it was likely he'd be sentenced to death anyway. So he felt like he was just completely effed and was panicking and thought the only option available to him was to try to clean the rented cottage up so maybe, maybe no one would be able to tell a murder, a very gruesome, grisly murder had happened there not long ago. Paddy and Jimmy were brothers. They weren't brothers, they were friends. Sorry. That's okay. They were were very good friends, yeah. Yeah, they were good friends. Mm. I feel like you'd be a bit rattled if you came back to your place and... Your mate's arm was just on the bed. Of course. And, like, these guys, you know, they'd been friends for a very long time. They'd worked on a bunch of different schemes over the years together. By schemes, of course, I mean crimes. Yeah, yeah, they were closely intertwined with each other. And, I mean, if Paddy hadn't been able to run away, chances are he probably would have been injured if not killed himself. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, yeah, he was understandably very anxious, very stressed while he went about trying to clean up the cottage. Um, And the theory is he put all of the blood-soaked stuff in there, including the mattress and the Mm -hmm. rug, put all Mm -hmm. that into the metal trunk, took that out into the harbour and dumped it into the ocean. And then over the next few days, he went to get replacements, hoping that the landlord wouldn't notice. But of course, the landlord did notice items had been replaced and the walls had been scrubbed, which... And what did he do with the arm? Okay. Then Paddy went to visit Reggie and maybe he did, like Reggie said, take Jimmy's arm with him and wave it around above his head (laughs) as a way of scaring Reggie. And basically he was demanding to Reggie, you're going to do two things for me. Number one, you'll continue to pay me the hush money that I've been blackmailing out of you just because Jimmy's gone doesn't mean that you can stop paying me. Number two, you will make it known on my behalf around the criminal underworld that I haven't been snitching. That's the best theory that he was relying on Reggie, um, relying on intimidating Reggie, I should say, to make sure he was getting those two outcomes, protecting his income stream so that he could continue to live his life in hiding for as long as he needed to and also make sure everyone was aware that he was going to play along and he wasn't going to go to the cops and rat anybody out. At some point, either Reggie or Paddy disposed of the arm by throwing it into the ocean, which did you ever watch Arrested Development? Yes, it's like oh. one of my favorite shows. Yes. So every time I think of this, I just picture Job throwing items <laughs> into the ocean, which he did several <laughs> times over the course of the series. And every time he did, he'd scream out, Return from whence he came. One time it was a dead rabbit, one time it was a dead dove, one time it was an envelope that kept flying back in his face. Yeah, I remember that one. So the arm hurled out into the ocean, returned from whence he came, and the guys then just hoped 
that this would all blow over, everything would be fine as long as everyone stayed quiet. But then a few weeks later, that bloody Shirley (laughs) very publicly vomited up the arm and everything started to unravel for Reggie and for Paddy from there. The police investigation led to both of them. Reggie panicked, tried to take his own life, failed at that. Then he lied to the cops when he told them it was Mm. Paddy who'd killed Jimmy A, because he wanted to get rid of the Paddy problem, and B, he also wanted to cover for the men he probably knew did kill Jimmy and therefore protect himself from those men. Those men, whoever they were, though, could see Reggie was unravelling and he was a liability and there was the possibility he might break and he might start leaking information to the cops when he was under duress. They decided they couldn't allow him to go ahead and testify at the coronial inquest and so they arranged the hit on Reggie. Therefore... This theory is Paddy didn't kill anybody, just like he said, and for the rest of his life, he sued anyone who even implied that he had killed Jimmy. But he did know the truth, and he took it with him to his grave. He died decades ago, of course. And Reggie was assassinated by people who didn't trust him to take the stand during the inquest. That all makes sense in the book and it is all quite neat Mm, and tidy. mm. But what we don't get closure on is the how and the when the arm got in Shirley's tummy. Yes. And I was really surprised when I was researching this that there seems to be a consensus across every source, including this one, shark arm, that Shirley swallowed the arm while she was in the wild and the arm stayed in her stomach for a week before she spewed it up. Most people seem to accept that Jimmy's arm was thrown into the ocean by Paddy and Reggie and then through a chain of events it ended up in Shirley's stomach Mm, out mm. there at sea. They think possibly that a weight was attached to the arm with the rope that was tied around the wrist or my theory about why the rope was around the wrist was that they wanted to like swing the arm around in circles to get up some momentum and then let it fly off like what's that thing they're doing the the hammer throw yeah or olympics (laughs) rhythmic gymnastics you know the (laughs) thing in the air um i feel like though do you know what occam's razor is mm mm-hmm it's like the simplest explanation is probably it. Like mm-hmm. I feel like surely he was just a body and his hands were tied together and they pushed him off the boat with waves and then Shirley just took a bite of his arm. We think the arm was cut off by a knife though. The forensic yeah, that, experts who that, investigated That was forensic in the 1930s. Yeah, you're absolutely right because, I mean, to believe this theory, you've got to believe that first a small shark ate the arm Yes. Got caught on a line trap. Then Shirley came along and ate the small shark. Yes, yes. So there was a human arm inside a small shark's stomach that was inside a big tiger shark's stomach, like some kind of turducken babushka doll situation. (laughs) Now, some people are willing to accept that because it helps them answer one of the other big questions, which was how could an entire human arm stay preserved inside the stomach of an animal that's known to have digestive acids and enzymes that could dissolve just about Mm. anything? The answer that a lot of people seem comfortable with is that Shirley's stomach was digesting the little shark that was surrounding the arm and when she'd finished digesting the cocoon of shark 
around the arm and the arm was exposed, that's when her body went, ooh, yuck, no thanks, and expelled it and out it came perfectly preserved. Now, do you buy that? It just seems like there's a lot of hoops to jump through for that to happen. Mm -hmm. And Lindsay? Uh, I would think that when the arm was chilling in the stomach of the smaller shark, it was probably starting to disintegrate a little bit in there before it reached Shirley. Right? Because, okay, first of all, and I'm not a marine biologist, so I... Well, look, a whole arm doesn't... I know sharks have strong stomach acid, but the shark also coughed up a fair few other things, right? Mm. So it's not like everything in the stomach gets disintegrated straight away. Mm -hmm. We don't know how recently that shark had eaten the rat or the bird. Um... So that's what I mean. So yeah. like they were they they were parcels of parts that mm. were still in there. We could experiment with this. Actually, we could yeah. get a shark. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised there haven't been more experiments mm. that have been done about this. But yeah, typically- I think it's unethical. <laughs> Um, sharks typically, I understand, digest a meal within like 48 hours. So the fact that this arm was still perfectly preserved after almost a week seems... But why was there a rat and a bird in there? Well, they could have been eaten within the last 24 were they hours. Feeding it, were they possibly. feeding Shirley rats and birds? Yeah, they were feeding her... Well, they were feeding her Rat. mostly um, rabbits sheep. and sheep, but a bird could have landed in the aquarium yep. tank and a water rat could have got a little bit too curious it, and wound up with a terrible Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. The things that I think discredit that theory, the tiger shark didn't just eat the little shark in one gulp. Like, it would have torn the little shark into chunks. So the idea that the stomach would have been perfectly protected as like Mm. a shell around Mm. the arm seems difficult for me to believe. Um, And then even if the arm was protected by this shell of shark meat, that shell was full of the smaller shark's stomach acid anyway. So it definitely would have disintegrated the arm more than it did. The tattoo was still visible. Mm. The fingerprints were still viable. Like it was incredibly well preserved. So I think that Shirley was fed the arm while she was in that pool, possibly Ah. as recently as the night before she hurled it up. Yep. I didn't even think of that. Talking about Arkham's razor, to me, that is the thing that requires the most jumps of logic. Um, <gasps> the least That's so obvious. Right? That's so obvious. Yeah. Um, I think it's far okay. more likely than anything else that this was an attempt okay. to dispose of evidence and it just went wrong because, oh Hello? no, the shark vomited. <laughs> but if you want to dispose of evidence, you've disposed of an arm. What do you do with the body? Well, okay. (laughs) (laughs) There's a whole body that's bleeding out on the bed. What do you do with that? Look, there are theories that the body was buried in the woods, that the body was given what's called a Sydney send-off and it was packed into a trunk, weighed down and also thrown in the harbour like Paddy got rid of the mattress and whatnot. Um, We do not know what happened to the rest of Jimmy's body, but it seems very intentional that the body part they chose to remove was the identifiable arm with the tattoo. They wanted that arm to be used in some capacity to spread the word, do not go to the cops, do not snitch on anybody or you'll end up like Jimmy Smith. Mm. Yeah. And then once the arm had served its purpose, I'm guessing that's when they decided, okay, it's time for us to dispose of this. Now... 
There was no roof on the aquarium, so I think it is possible that someone could have thrown the arm over the wall. Yeah. Maybe using yeah. that <laughs> rhythmic gymnast <laughs> method with the rope tied around the wrist to um, get some momentum and some height. Or I think it's possible the owners of the aquarium knew a lot more than they revealed yeah. to the cops. And, they might have been dodgy. Uh-huh. More dodgy. Years later, we found out that they were connected to the same smuggling rings that Reggie and Paddy and Jimmy were in. Mm-hmm. So they knew so all they were those in on it. characters. I think they were, yes. And I think they got away with it and managed to convince everybody that Shirley showed up with the arm in her stomach. What do you think, Taria? What do you think, Lindsay? Well, I guess it's one of those things, right, where there's no one knows and there's no clear resolution mm-hmm. or outcome. Mm-hmm. But I really loved your theory about how they threw the arm in once the shark was in the aquarium. Yeah. To me... That does make sense, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And back when I first sense. stumbled across this story, it seemed like that was one of the big questions. How did the arm end up in there? Did the shark come in with the arm in its stomach or was the arm placed there and swallowed by her later on? But everything that I've read in the last few days has indicated that people have just accepted that Shirley had Jimmy's arm inside her when she showed up at that aquarium, which I found surprising. Mm. Yeah, prior to the fact, like, that's very obvious that someone threw her the arm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that theory makes more sense to me now than having the arm hurled into the ocean, another shark ate it, Mm -hmm. Shirley ate that shark. That's implausible, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Which kind of makes it a better story. Yeah. And so I can see why that's attractive to people that they're like, wow, can you imagine a one in a trillion chance that all of these things would happen just out of coincidence? Um, Yeah, to me that makes it highly unlikely. But you know what? Maybe I am missing something. Maybe there's a blind spot I'm obviously unaware of. If anyone's familiar with this case and um, you want to explain to me why I'm wrong and why the arm could not have been fed to Shirley while she was in captivity, by all means, let us know. Um, You can send us an email at justthegistpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on at justthegistpodcast or you can come straight to me at Jacob William Stanley if you want to. To reappear to that was just the gist of the shark arm murders of 1935. Thank you so much, Taria. It was where, awesome. Where can people it was find awesome. you? Oh, okay. They can find me at Taria Pitt on mm-hmm. Instagram or I think TikTok. It's at Taria underscore Pitt. Mm-hmm. Terrific. So we'll go find you there. And is there anything apart from your podcast that you want to let people know about? Anything you've got coming up that you'd like to plug? No, the podcast is great. Yeah. Can yeah. vouch for that. Get into it. Um, just maybe don't listen to that cave um, rescue episode before bed. <laughs> yes, it is very intense and you're going to want to give yeah. yourself a bit of time to unwind. Um, <laughs> yes. But it was brilliant. Congratulations on that. Really, really well done. Yeah, legend. 
Thank you so much. Cheers Thanks, once guys. again. Really great to meet Cheers. you. And so I'm great finished. to have you on the pod. I finished one during that chat. Had a girl. Mm. Yeah. Hard, I'm so hardcore, yeah. <laughs> Queenslander. Yeah. <laughs> and if any listeners are getting to the end of this story and just frothing for another <laughs> shark attack story, uh, actually my favourite probably ever episode of mm. Just a Gist is one that Rosie told Jacob in February of last year the title of the episode, The horrifi- Horrifying Story of the <gasps> 1981 Trashman yes. Yacht Sinking, oh. which is one of the worst shark attack stories of all time. A uh-huh. uh, very gist of a gist is that a bunch of people are on a boat and eventually one is picked off one by one. And it is, I can still remember so vividly where I heard it for the first time. And if I had to recommend a gateway drug to new people who've never heard Just a Gist, mm. that's one of the ones that I recommend. It okay, I'm gonna I'm really gonna good. I'm gonna listen to it while I cook dinner. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. We'll put the link in the show notes, of course. Yes, I'm gonna go back and listen to that one again, mm. I think. Um sensational. Taria, thank you once again. Lindsay, thank you. And thank you to all you gistners. We love you very much. Bye-bye. Thanks, Gistners. Thanks, guys. Bye. 